This is Smart Politics, and I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. Smart Politics helps you make sense of the news. The stakes in politics are real, and it's important that we think clearly about the issues that matter most. This is part three of my series about the war in Afghanistan. I'd recommend going back and listening to the first two episodes if you haven't already. Those episodes dealt with the history of Afghanistan before we got there and what the true cost of the war really was, not just the money spent. For this episode, I'm looking to the future and not just to the future of Afghanistan, but to the future of war itself. Themes that I touched on in previous episodes, such as the geography of the region and the role of technology, will become more prevalent here. But there's also a larger fact to keep in mind. While our departure from the country threatens to undo much of the progress that was made, the changes in warfare are the ones that can't be undone. I believe that our time in Afghanistan fundamentally changed war forever. And the world will look far different moving forward. So in this episode, I'm going to try and predict what I think happens in Afghanistan now that we're gone. And I'm going to explain exactly how drones have changed everything. Let's begin. The news of the last few weeks has already shown this to be true, but it's worth saying anyway. The return of the Taliban to power is likely going to result in a significant rollback in human rights for the people in Afghanistan. Political leaders may try to convince us of the Taliban's sincerity or that they've changed their ways. But there's no evidence of that. Already, we've seen the gradual reduction in women's rights the return of public executions, and the reintroduction of a society based on an extremely strict theological interpretation. None of this is meant as a justification for returning to war. If you listen to episode two, then you know I fully appreciate how horrific war can be. But we shouldn't pretend that whatever gains we made have a good chance of staying in place. The Taliban have a very specific view of how Afghanistan should be run, and they're the ones in charge now. Which means they get to try and turn that view into reality. While that reality is going to be harsher, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be unwelcome by everyone. This may be hard to understand but there really are people who prefer life under the Taliban. When the Taliban first came to power, one of the things they claimed to be fighting against was corruption and chaos. Years of war and instability had made some people hungry for anything else. And now, after 20 years of war, there are people who are once again ready to return to Taliban rule even if it comes at the price of some of their freedoms. To understand why, you have to realize that, for instance, during our time in Afghanistan, there was a significant rise in both crime rates and drug addiction rates. The 
chaos, death, and destruction that was a part of our occupation also made it difficult to start legitimate business. And the unemployment rate, which fell after our initial invasion, had started to creep up to pre-invasion levels a few years ago. So Afghanistan was not in a good place in the years leading up to us leaving. The Taliban, while unquestionably brutal, represent a source of calm for some. But the price for that calm will be high. There will be horrifying stories. And the crackdown on freedom for women in particular is going to be a bitter pill for us to swallow. It's going to be a continual reminder of our failure. Beyond that, though, Afghanistan's future is likely to be determined by the countries that surround it. In the first episode, I mentioned that the country was circled by nations that were both more powerful and also intensely interested in what happened. Our time there allowed those countries to step back. But with us leaving, they're going to return. On a basic level, those countries aren't interested in having an unstable haven for terrorists near their borders. The establishing of ISIS inside Afghanistan's borders would be upsetting for us. But for their more powerful neighbors, it's a much different threat. Which means they're going to interfere in the politics of the country. One of the most tragic aspects of the past, present, and future for Afghans is that they've never really been allowed to determine their own future. Whether it was the British, the Russians, or the Americans, much of their recent history has been shaped by others. Unfortunately, I don't see that letting up anytime soon. Their neighbors may want stability but they're also competing with one another. So while they may, on occasion, allow the people to have a voice, they're all trying to make sure their voice is the loudest in the room. Ultimately, I think another country will invade Afghanistan eventually. I can't predict who it will be or when it will happen. I can't even say that it won't be us. But the conditions in the country make it difficult to see a path towards prosperity. The economy is spiraling down already as foreign aid money is pulled out and sanctions on the Taliban kick in. And if their human rights abuses start to pile up, then more sanctions will be on the way. As that process happens, the Taliban's ability to govern starts to collapse as does their ability to keep out extremist elements. And if one of those elements became too threatening to a regional or global power, that's how another war in the country would begin. But how might that war be fought? Right now, we're living through a massive change in warfare. It's difficult for us to comprehend because we're not a victim of it but also because it can be hard to understand history while you're living through it. We've become accustomed to discussing drone strikes as if they're an accepted fact of war. The reality is that before 2001, drones were only used for reconnaissance. 
The first time a drone was armed in our pursuit of Osama bin Laden was the first time it had been done. But with new military technology comes new questions about how to use it in a way that's ethical. Similar to how the invention of atomic weaponry raised questions about when, if ever, it was appropriate to destroy a city, the invention of lethal drones brings its own problems. Is it appropriate to kill an enemy combatant at no risk to yourself? Intuitively, the answer would seem to be yes. But casualties are one of the main risks of war. If the risk of them is zero, then you've just removed one of the largest deterrents to war. The low-risk, high-reward nature of drones is what allowed us to fight for 20 years while largely focusing only on the financial cost of doing so. Should technologically advanced countries be able to easily ignore the boundaries and wishes of the less advanced? Drones with their size and flight patterns are difficult to stop, but incredibly lethal when they arrive. For countries without sufficiently advanced countermeasures, drones can be deployed in those places to kill anybody at any time. And it won't stop at drones. Last year, Israel pulled off one of the most improbable assassinations in human history. An AI-assisted machine gun mounted on a vehicle and ultimately fired by a person still in Israel was used to kill an Iranian nuclear scientist in Iran. Killer drones and AI hitmen would have sounded like science fiction two decades ago. But this isn't some far-fetched story. It's the present. The future of warfare is going to be driven by robots and computers. There may still be a person pulling the trigger, but that person is going to be comfortably seated thousands of miles away. As wild as these advancements are, this is only the tip of the iceberg. Already, our military is considering a number of ways to upgrade our drones. More durability, more weapons, and the ability to be controlled by an AI are all things that we're exploring right now. And as other countries begin developing their own programs to match ours, even greater leaps forward are sure to follow. We dropped the atomic bomb in 1945. With the force of 20 kilotons of TNT and the capacity to level a city, it seemed impossible to imagine that something ever stronger could be developed. But 16 years later, in the midst of the Cold War, the Soviet Union detonated the Tsar Bomba, a nuclear weapon with a 50 megaton blast, over 3,000 times stronger than the bomb dropped on Nagasaki. The era of machine-driven combat is only beginning. And just as the development of atomic weaponry raised troubling and still unanswered questions about warfare, this new era will raise its own. 
I don't know when the next war will be fought. And I don't know who will be doing the fighting. But if the past is any indication, it won't look anything like what we're used to. Whether that ends up being for better or worse is going to be up to us and our leaders. It's going to require us to start asking questions about ethics and morality. It's going to require us to start thinking carefully about the world we want to pass on to future generations. The war in Afghanistan belongs to history now, but the future is still undetermined. This wraps up my series of three pods about the war in Afghanistan, but we have one more featuring a discussion between myself and regular guest Francine Dash. So join us on the next episode.